My name's Erwin Ralston. My parents are down on Larry Ralston of Englewood, Colorado. Whoever finds this, please make an attempt to get it to them. Be sure of it. I would appreciate it. Trapped. April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston went for a hike in Blue John Canyon in Utah. And as he was going along his hike, he slipped and grabbed a boulder, fell to the canyon floor, and had his arm pinned between an 800-pound boulder and the rock wall. This is actually a picture of him trapped. Um, He was freaking out, as you could obviously Imagine, he was 50 miles away from civilization, and all Aaron had to survive on were two burritos, one bottle of water, and a couple of candy bars. So Aaron's hopeless, terrified, afraid. But once he starts to calm down a little bit, he starts to think through his options. How is he going to survive? So option one, he could try to signal for help. But he's so far beneath the surface, and he didn't have anything to you know, signal that he was down there, and there probably wasn't anybody around anyways. So option one was out the window. He couldn't signal for help. So option two, he had a pocket knife, and he thought, okay, well, maybe if I chip away at this 800-pound boulder, I can maybe get my arm free. So he spent the next 15 hours chipping and chipping and chipping before finally he just realized, man, I'm not getting anywhere. Option two is out the window. So option three, was he had a rope with him. And so he put that rope around the boulder and made a makeshift pulley, and he put all his weight into it and tried to pull and move that boulder, but it was 800 pounds, so the boulder didn't move. So all of his options are out the window. And at this point, Aaron decides, I'm going to die. This is it. I'm trapped. No one even knows I'm out here. People won't know I'm missing for several days. I don't have enough food or water to make it. I'm out here in the heat. And so he started to make videos like the one we just watched where he's saying, hey, this is it. My life's over. His last will and testament. Aaron was going to die. And suddenly, as Aaron began to fade in and out of consciousness, he had a dream. He had a vision. had some sort of, some experience. And in that dream, he saw his future son. He didn't have a son, but he saw himself playing with a little boy, and he knew that that was his future son. And Aaron was so motivated by his future son that he said, I'm going to go for option four. I'm so motivated that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. i got to take radical action. I must survive. And so he torqued his body, snapped both bones in his arm, took out the pocket knife, and cut his own arm off. Yeah. So he cuts his arm off, and he's not sure if he can survive because he's so dehydrated. He's bleeding out. He staggers through the canyon. He's hoping, praying that he can find somebody. And there in the distance is a family that's on a hike. And he can barely yell. He yells out, help, help. And they turn around, they see him, they run to him. They're able to contact uh, medical help, and in four hours, because of they were able to come in a helicopter, the medics get there, they take care of him, 
He survives. Aaron Ralston, this guy who decided, I'm dead, it's over. He survived. It's crazy. So Aaron Ralston went on to be a motivational speaker, an author. He wrote an autobiography, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. It's not a joke. It's an actual book. Um, And he went on to have that future son. Here's a picture of Aaron and his son. It was that vision that motivated him. I have to be with my son. I can live. I'm going to make it. That drove Aaron. Now, the story of Aaron Rawson is really powerful. I love it because there's that moment where he's, he's given up all hope. He could not do it. He could not survive. What changed? He had a motive. He had a reason to live. And that motive was so compelling that he was willing to take action. And so it highlights this, this important truth that motives can be extremely powerful. Motives can be extremely powerful. We know this to be true in all areas of life, whether people are motivated by money or fear of failure or relationships. Uh, we all know what it's like to have inhibitions. Maybe there's something inside of you, right, that's like, ah, I don't know if I can do this thing. And then, boom, you have a reason and you're able to overcome it. Uh, For some of us, it's not our inhibition. Some of us, it's the hostile culture that we're a part of or circumstances or people that are pushing back, whatever it is. It's something outside of us. And we're like, man, I can't do this thing I'm trying to do. And then we get a motive and we're able to break through and take action. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a mission. You've been given the great commandments and the great commission. Love God, love people, and make disciples. That's what everybody here has been commanded by King Jesus to do. That's what we're trying to do, right? Can we be honest? It's hard to make disciples. Anybody struggle with making disciples? You can nod your head, raise your hand, whatever you want to do. It, it is difficult. I feel like I, sometimes I think, man, I can be a preacher, but I don't know if I can be a disciple maker. I'm just being real with y'all. It is much more difficult to share my faith with a non-Christian, baptize them, show them by my modeling how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to live in Christian community, how to persevere, all those things, Right? and then help them to reach someone else. That's much more difficult to me than just standing up here and talking, right? And so the question I've got is, if motives are really that powerful, then what motives could you and I tap into that would help us make disciples? If we feel overwhelmed and burdened and stuck at the thought of making disciples of Jesus, what if we just haven't discovered that motive that could empower us to take action. So I think that we all in this room, if you're a Christian, we need an Aaron Ralston moment. Now, don't worry, you don't have to cut your arm off, okay? But we need that moment where we discover what's that reason that's going to compel us to share our faith and to make disciples of Jesus. And so to do that, I'm going to be honest, uh, I don't have the answers because, like I said, I struggle to make disciples but we need to turn to someone who knows the struggle and yet has overcome them. So we're going to open up the Word of God and we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul. If you've got a Bible, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Thanks for being here, whether it's your first time or you've been here a couple of times. We're thankful you're here. Um, Just follow along on the screen. Um, We believe that this is the inspired Word of God. So whatever we're about to read, this is, this is important. This, this rules our life. This is where 
we get everything from right here. So let's see what motivated the Apostle Paul. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Since we know the fear of the Lord, Paul and his ministry team, they experienced the fear of the Lord, a reverential awe at God and who he is. But why? Why do they fear the Lord? Well, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore come before an idea, you can just say, okay, well, what comes before that connects to this idea? So why did they fear the Lord? Whatever comes before the word therefore. So let's back up to verse 6 and let's see why they feared the Lord. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So in other words, he's saying, while I'm living this life and this body, I am not with God because God's in the heavens, right? For we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we can't see God because we're here in this body. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul said, I'd rather be with God. I'd rather leave this body. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. What did he make his aim? To be pleasing to him. Paul wanted to please the Lord. Why? Why would he want to please the Lord? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why did they have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul and his ministry team, they feared the Lord because they believed, they had a conviction that one day they would appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in that moment, they would be repaid for how they lived in this life. So in the next life, they would be rewarded based on how they lived in this life. That's what caused them to fear the Lord. Now, we know from reading this letter, 2 Corinthians, and from Paul's other letters, and just reading the whole Bible, that when Paul's talking about coming before the judgment seat of Christ, he's not saying that I am going to come before God and God's going to say, Preston, did you do more good things than bad things? And if you did, then you can live with me in heaven. We know he's not saying that. Our good works don't cause God to forgive us, right? Not, not if you're tracking with me, okay, we get that. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So because what Jesus did, and we trust him, we're declared righteous and made right with God. However, what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 14, for example, Paul says that although I'm made right with God through faith in Jesus, there's going to come a day where he would stand before Jesus and Jesus would reward him based on how he lived his life. In other words, the level of faithfulness to Jesus that Paul had, he would be rewarded in proportion to that. This is something that Jesus taught, that Paul taught, the other writers of the New Testament were going to be rewarded based on our faithfulness. So this word uh, in Greek, judgment seat of Christ, it's one word, bema. So it's B-E-M-A. And a bema was this raised platform on which judges would sit and they would look out over Olympic games and they had two main things that they were trying to do. One is they were trying to make sure that every athlete competed according to the rules and then two, whoever was the victor, those judges would reward them. They would 
put the laurel wreath on their head and crown them victors. So it's, it's the same idea. You and I will come before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ as believers, saved by the grace of God, and based on how faithful we are in this life, we will be rewarded in the next life. The Bema, the judgment seat, it's not a place of condemnation. It's not a, oh, I'm a Christian, but wait, am I going to go to heaven or hell last second? No, it's not that. It's, I'm a Christian, how faithful was I will determine how much God rewards me. Is this making sense? Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So the question that I want to ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe, are you convicted that you're saved by the grace of God and yet there's going to come a day when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and King Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, he's going to repay you based on what you did in this body. Do you believe that? Does that govern how you think and how you treat people, how you live your life now? Or do you think, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm saved? I remember watching, uh, oh, was it The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? It was The Bachelorette with Hannah Brown. Yeah, so when Meg and I were in Alabama, Meg was good friends with Hannah Brown at one point, but um, don't hold it against her. But uh, I'm kidding. So I don't know if y'all remember, there was the windmill episode. Does anybody kind of nod your head if y'all, it's okay, it's a safe place to say you watch The Bachelorette. There was this episode where this girl who was this outspoken Christian had sex with multiple guys and everyone was like, oh my goodness. And she said, well, you can't judge me. God loves me. I'm a Christian. You see how that doesn't make any sense <laughs> for a lot of reasons. If someone believes that they're going to be repaid for how they live in this body, they aim to please the Lord. They don't say, I'm a Christian, I believe, and I'll live how I want, and I'm still going to be saved. No, you say, I want to please God. I fear him. I have this, this awe and this reverence. He is the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And sometimes I think we're so non-denominational that we walk in late, two songs in, come back and get my cup of, cup of coffee. Everybody's singing and stuff. I'm kind of talking and checking my phone. I'll walk in in my football jersey or my sweatpants or, you know, and I love that stuff because I came from a really strict traditional church growing up. So I, I, you know, don't hear it. I love that stuff. I love that we're not denominational. But sometimes I just wonder, are we so casual that we don't have a fear of the Lord? He's going to repay you based on how faithful you are. Paul was motivated by that. That was one of his motives. And so it drove him. Why did he make disciples? Why did he love God? Why did he love people? One of the reasons is he was so motivated because he knew the judgment seat of Christ was coming. And so Paul was motivated by that, and it led him to took, take action. It caused him to actually do something. So let's look back at the verse, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore... Since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Paul and his ministry team, because they knew the fear of the Lord, because they knew they'd come before the judgment seat of Christ and be repaid, they tried to persuade people. Well, persuade people to do what? If you keep reading, which we're going to study the next part of this passage next Sunday, you'll see that this is all about leading people to trust Jesus, to believe the gospel, to become a Christian. In other words, because Paul believed 
that he was going to be rewarded and he wanted to please God, he told lost people the good news of Jesus. He said, here's the message of Jesus. Here's what he done. Here's who he is. And then he persuaded them. He convinced them. He won them over. He moved them to place their faith in Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, persuade people to trust Christ. We're not supposed to do that. I shouldn't put my beliefs on someone else. Or you might be thinking, Preston, you, we can't persuade people to trust Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Well, if we want to imitate Paul as he made disciples, it would be hard to imitate Paul and not persuade people to trust Christ. Why? Because that's how his ministry is described over and over and over again. I could read at least five times. I'm just going to read three from the book of Acts just to really help you see this is biblical. It's biblical and loving to persuade people to trust Christ. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Here's what he said. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. Acts chapter 26, verses 27 to 29. Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Why did he ask that question? Was it because he didn't know the answer? Do you, know, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Why did he ask a question to this king that he knew the answer to? Because he knew if he could get him to say, I do believe the prophets, then his next step could be the one that the prophets talked about who would come is Jesus. You see what I'm saying? He leveraged his worldview to make a case for Jesus. He said, uh, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Answer, yes, I do want to persuade you to become a Christian. I don't know if this is a secret or not, but every time I preach, I'm hoping to persuade people to become Christians. I want to convert people. Yes, we should do that. Acts chapter 28, 23 to 24. After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging from dawn to dusk. He expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. See, one of the reasons that Paul was such an effective disciple maker is because he told people about Jesus in a way that persuaded them to trust Jesus. He convinced people. He reasoned with people. He was bold. He won people to Christ. And so if you and I are going to be motivated by what motivated Paul, the judgment seat of Christ and being rewarded for how we live now, then you and I have got to do the same thing we got to live to please the Lord, and specifically, we got to persuade people to trust Christ by faith 
in the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, we got to persuade people to trust Christ. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying manipulate people. I'm not saying treat people like projects. Uh, I'm not saying pull a bait and switch on people. I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is if we're going to be like Paul, we have to in love. If we really care about people and their eternal well-being and their well-being right now on earth, we got to tell people about Jesus in a way that will convince them, in a way that's compelling to them. Now, you might be wondering, well, Preston, how do we do that? How, what does that look like practically? Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, I'm studying the Bible, reading, learning from other people. But here's three things I want to give you if you're taking notes. I think these three things are very practical and very helpful, and you can use them in a variety of situations. So um, here's the first thing. If you're going to persuade people to trust Christ, you got to be clear. Be clear. So Paul in uh, Colossians chapter 4, he prayed that the church in Colossae would, would um, actually, that he asked them to pray for him that he would make the mystery of the gospel clear. So here's what I mean. At some point in your interactions with people, whether you just met a person for the first time or you've known someone for 50 years, there's going to come a moment where you just got to tell them. You just got to tell them something. You just got to be clear. Make it really simple and clear. Okay? So here, there's three different elements that I would say you got to get clear on. The first one is just, this is good news about Jesus. That's what the message is, right? Good news about Jesus. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see that there's a bunch of different ways that the gospel is shared. There's not like one way. So it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, when we talk about sharing our faith, a lot of times we'll talk about tools. So maybe some of you grew up hearing the Romans Road. Others of you, you know, you got the bridge and the cross. Some, some of you, you know, three circles that we've done here. There's really not one way to communicate it. But what you got to talk about is Jesus. Typically in, in, in the book of Acts, you'll see them probably most times talk about he died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. That's pretty much it. In some cases, they'll talk about he was born of the virgin. In some cases, he lived a perfect life died on the cross, raised from the dead. Sometimes we'll talk about he ascended to the right hand of God where he's ruling as king. So you can talk about he's king right now. And you can also talk about sometimes they talk about how he will return and judge the living and the dead. So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but you've got to tell them about Jesus, okay? The second element that we have to get clear about are the, I don't know the best word to use, I'm just going to say benefits or the implications for you um, so I would word it like this. The, the news is about Jesus, and the benefits are life change. God will change your life if you trust and follow Jesus. So, for example, in the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 2, Peter shares the message about Jesus, and then he says, you will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Because he wants them to hear why they should put their faith in Jesus. Something's going to happen for you. There's actually going to be a benefit, an impact. Uh, so that's a good thing to share. Sometimes people talk about, hey, all the wrong that you've done, you can be forgiven of. You don't have to live with guilt and shame. You can have a clear conscience. You can be right with God. Some, you can talk about, um, again, you feel like you can't change. You feel like you try to modify your behavior and you're just saying things over and over. Well, God can give you a new heart. He can put his spirit in you and he can change you from the inside. For some people, you might want to share, hey, do you fear dying? That's a pretty common thing, 100% of people. You're going to die at some point, right? So do you fear death? Yeah. Hey, 
if you trust in Jesus, you can have eternal life now and forever. You can live forever. There's benefits, right? So you got to get clear. It's a message about Jesus, and it can change your life. And then the third thing is, when it comes to being clear, is we got to tell people how to respond. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, uh, it's one of those moments where Peter preaches the message. He's clear, tells them it's about Jesus, tells them how their lives can change. And then the people, they say, it, they're cut to the heart, and it says, what must we do to be saved? Have you ever had that moment where you share the gospel with somebody and it's, Preston, what must I do to be saved? Can't say it's ever happened to me. That would be, that would be you know, softball, just really easy, right? But there comes that moment where people need to know what to do. They say, okay, there, this good news, this happened 2,000 years ago and it can change my life. Now what? There's a bunch of different ways, again, that this gets talked about in the, in the New Testament. So, for example, in Acts 2, Peter said, repent and be baptized. In other places in Acts, they just say, believe. Um, in other places, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that he's Lord. Um, there, there's a mix of different ways that ultimately all are saying, you're going this way. Stop living this life. Stop being this kind of person. Stop being king of your own life and turn to Jesus and ask Jesus to save you and to change you and trust him. So people turn away. They believe. They confess that he's Lord. They're baptized into Christ to express that faith that they have. All of that, however you want to word it, whatever biblical way you want to use, you got to tell people how to respond. Okay? So it's a message about Jesus. It can change their life. And they got to respond. they got to trust Jesus. So one, one aspect of persuading people, there will come a moment where you get clear. You just tell them the message, right? That's probably the easiest part. All right, so here's the second thing. How do we persuade people to trust Christ? Be wise. Be wise. So here's what I mean. Did Paul always start in the same place when he was going to share the gospel with somebody? Yes or no? No? Okay, let's test this theory. See if Mary's right. I trust she is, but let's see. So, Paul goes to the synagogue. Who's at the synagogue? Jewish people. Okay. What do Jewish people go to for their beliefs about God and life? The Torah, or what's another way of describing it? Scriptures, or what else? Old Testament. Yeah, any of those things, right? So they believe that, right? So when Paul would go to the synagogue, he would specifically go straight to the Old Testament or the scriptures of the Torah, and he would say, read this. You believe this, right? The prophet said this. Who is this about? It's about this guy, Jesus. Why? He died on a cross, and I saw him raised from the dead. He's going to come back and judge the world. Trust him. Turn away from Judaism. Trust Jesus. That was his starting point, right? The Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, what if he wasn't talking to Jewish people? What if he went to the marketplace at Mars Hill? Where did he start with Gentiles, Greeks? Say that again. And yes, common ground, they already believed in higher powers. And as he looked around, what, what, what was that jumping off point? What did he see? They said, ah, I can start there. He saw an idol to the unknown God. Think about this. 
Did Paul go to the Old Testament and say, hey, let me show you guys what the prophets said? No, why? They didn't believe the prophets. They're not Jews. What did he do? He looked around the Areopagus and he saw they've got idol after idol after idol after idol, all of these idols, and it burdened him. It actually says it, it burdened him. And then he saw an idol to the unknown God. And what was the first thing he said? He walked up to this group of people that he, he, he did not like it that people were worshiping these false gods. And he said, I see that you're very religious. <laughs> he, he tried to connect with them. You see that? He, he validated in some ways. He said, oh, I see that you're very religious. And I see that you worship all these gods and you even worship the unknown God. And I've come to tell you about the unknown God. You see that? You see how he started where they were at to get to where Jesus was, right? Start where they are, get to Jesus. So there's different starting points based on who you're talking to. One of the ways that you can kind of go about being wise, again, is you don't, you don't think, okay, three circles. I'm going to tell everybody the exact same thing, and I'm going to do step one, step two, step three. No, you've got you to gotta vary your approach. How do you do that? One good way to do it is to ask questions. So you're just asking questions. You're asking about people's stories, what they believe, their life circumstances. And here's the deal. On one hand, there's good for a couple of reasons. One is that you're just showing you care about them, which you do, and so you're taking a genuine interest in those people. But the other thing is they're giving you all the information. You don't have to be an expert on Mormonism. Just ask the Mormon person, hey, what do you believe? What are some of your core beliefs? They'll tell you. They'll tell you what they believe. You don't have to learn every religion. You don't have to know every single... Just ask them questions and let them tell you. They'll give you a lot of the information. And then you respond based on what they're sharing. Did Paul water down the gospel by doing that? No. Did he change the message? No. Did he pull punches? No. That's just being wise. That's just being shrewd. And so you, you be clear... But you got to be wise. you got to know how to navigate the conversation to get to that moment where you're clear. The last thing I think is really helpful is, number three, to persuade people to trust Christ, we've got to be gracious. So I think when, you know, you hear somebody like me talking like this, and, you know, I tend to get fired up. So when I'm talking like this in front of a crowd of people and using words that Paul used like, persuade or plead or urge or expound or reason or prove. It's strong language, right? Well, there's also places like in Colossians 4 or Peter and in 1 Peter 3 when it talks about giving reason for the hope that you have in the midst of hard circumstances where they use language like gentleness and kindness and love. So basically, you don't have to be an argumentative jerk to persuade people to trust Christ. In fact, if you're an argumentative jerk, I don't think you'll effectively persuade people to trust Christ. I think if you get mad, if you get defensive, which, guys, I, I, I literally do that most days of my life probably. I can get defensive, right? But if I get defensive and I get mad, they're probably not going to listen. And if I get offensive and I offend them and they get mad, they're probably not going to listen. But if I can be gentle and loving and kind and demonstrate this is hard for me with my face, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some people got RBF in here. I got some of that. 
It's hard. I got on Sundays, I really got to work. I do some exercises back there, you know, getting ready. But I, I want my face, my body language. I want my tone. I'm not going to, hey, Jesus loves you. And uh, no, I'm saying, Jesus loves you. And I want, I want my body and my tone and my words to all line up that I love and respect this person. I genuinely love this person. I respect this person. I don't agree with them, but I love and respect them. And so I, I need to be gracious. And Paul said in, in Colossians 4 that that will help you know how to respond to each person. The key to knowing how to respond to each person is being gracious. Now, you might be thinking, Preston, that sounds great. Paul, Peter, all these Bible people, sure, they could do all that stuff, but I could never do that. I, there's no way I could persuade someone to trust Christ. You absolutely can. There's many people at New Life here and our other campus that, that do this all the time. One of them, his name's Dale Spaulding. Uh, here's a picture of Dale and his wife, Nancy. Dale's the chairman of the leadership team. He's a really great guy. Um, and here's a picture of Dale baptizing a guy. So Dale has baptized over 80 people in his life. I, I, it's hard for me to fathom that many people. Uh, I doubt anyone in this room has ever even come close, including myself, to baptizing 80 people. How does Dale do it? How does he persuade people to trust Christ? Well, first of all, he's, he's, he's a lot older than some of us, so he's got more time. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, he, how does Dale do it? Well, I asked him. I said, Dale, can you share how you do this? And so he gave me a couple of stories to show us, kind of illustrate for us how he does this. So here's three stories. He gave me a bunch, but I just picked these three. So here's the first one. This is science guy. I met a volunteer at the hospital. I listened to his story. You seeing? You already seeing it? I listened to his story. He was a retired mathematics professor. You think that might be important for how he approaches the conversation? I had common ground in math and science as I was an engineer at Boeing. Listen for a story, it's finding common ground. I shared that my faith was an intelligent faith. Why would he do that? Well, because he knew this guy was smart and he assumed, well, one of the typical pushbacks is, oh, you're a Christian, oh, you're stupid. You obviously got to be stupid and desperate to believe there's a God that's making all this happen. And so he said, hey, my faith is an intelligent faith. I studied history and how the Bible corroborated history. I shared with him how scientists have discovered the universe has a design, and therefore the universe must have a designer. And I encouraged him to examine the science, and in doing so, he will discover God. He tailored all of that towards a guy who had a science background. Now the next person. After ordering our food, I told the waitress that my wife and I are going to spend some time praying before our meal. Some of you will go eat lunch somewhere this afternoon and you'll have an opportunity to obey the word of God and persuade someone by asking your waiter or waitress, hey, we're about to pray for our food. What can we pray for you about? And then you just zip your lip <laughs> and you wait. Now, some people will be really thrown off and they'll be like, uh, I'm good. And trust me, I've gotten that a lot of times. But then sometimes it'll happen like this woman that Dale talked to. She said that no one has ever asked her that question before. 
Have you thought about that? That there's people that you interact with on a regular basis that have never had a single person in their life ask, how can I pray for you? Think about the power of that question. And and it shows how much you care for someone that you'd be willing to do that. She poured out her heart to us with many challenges going on in her life. We prayed for her before our meal and then later uh, prayed with her. Third example, sports guy. <laughs> I saw a guy wearing a Georgia Bulldog sweatshirt. Mm, that's, that's, that's ugly. My common ground was SEC football, uh, Dale said, as I'm an Auburn alumni. After talking about football and gaining his trust, common interest, showing you care, building trust, I shifted the conversation to the spiritual side. So there came a point where he had to intentionally navigate into faith. He was open and honest about his conclusions that most church people are hypocrites. We've never met one of those in church, right? No? Okay. Don't look at them. Okay. Um, we, we were about five minutes from the Fair Oaks Mall. So I said, the mall's full of hypocrites, but we still go there. I've heard people say before, do you go to the gym? Do you work out? There's hypocrites there. I encouraged him not to form, listen to this, his personal decisions about God based on the actions of flawed human beings. That's good. I challenged him to give God and his church and church a try. I gave him a new life card with our website, campus locations, and worship times, and where to find me when he comes. Dale has persuaded people to trust Christ by doing very simple things, by by just being gracious. A lot of it, Dale is a super gracious guy. He was kind, caring, asked questions, listened to their story, but he was also being wise. He was listening. What's their worldview? worldview? How do they think? How might, what kind of objections or questions, pushbacks might this person have? And then at some point he shifted the conversation and got clear. Jesus has changed my life. Here's the story of Jesus. What do you think? Guys, you don't have to hit a grand slam. You don't have to hit a home run. You don't even have to hit a triple, a double. You don't even have to hit a single. You don't even have to get on base. Here's what I'm asking you to do today. Could you just step into the batter's box? Could you just have a conversation with someone who's not a Christian Ask questions, care about them, listen, find common ground, and then maybe, just maybe attempt to shift to, hey, do you go to church? What's your faith background? Especially on Sunday, you know, easy, or at the beginning of the week, hey, what'd you do this weekend? They ask you what you did. Oh yeah, me and my family went to church. Could you take just a baby step, get in the box, an attempt to persuade someone. If everybody in this room were to do that, if every Christian at every church in America just did that, if we said, hey, I'm not even necessarily going to have to baptize somebody this week, but I just want to put a pebble in their shoe. I just want to have an encounter with this person to where they start to question, wow, that Christian, they were really nice to me. They prayed for me. They cared enough to listen to my story when no one else does. They invited me to their church, their small group, whatever. 
could change a lot of lives. So we're not about listening to the word. We're about obeying the word. If you got your journal, your phone, something to write on, go ahead and pull that out right now. Come on, come on, come on, pull it out. Let's do it. I'm going to give you two minutes to write down your answer to three important questions. What did you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is God saying to you through his word? How are you going to obey him? I'm not asking you to do something that I want you to do. I'm just asking you, and I'm, I'm going to have to answer this question too. How are we going to obey him? And then finally, who are you going to share this with? Maybe there's somebody, a specific person that's coming to your mind. Write that person's name down. And then think through, okay, this week, when am I going to see that person? Am I going to see them at work? Or I'm going to see them at the store. I'm going to go to the store on Wednesday. Whatever it is, just write down your plan. How are you going to persuade someone to trust Christ? Just get in the batter's box this week. So go ahead, write down your answer to those three questions. So Paul was motivated by the judgment seat of Christ. But he had one other motive, at least in this passage, that's really, really important. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. I think we got those verses. We can throw them up on the screen. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. The love of Christ compelled Paul. Specifically, the love of Christ as expressed through his death on the cross. What was the, the other great motive that Paul had? Paul was motivated by the cross of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ and the cross of Christ were two of the greatest motivations in Paul's heart. So what about you? Does the cross of Christ compel you? Does it motivate you? To not live for yourself, but to live for him. If you're a Christian today, Every week we stumble 
we fail, we've got to, with the help of our brothers and sisters, get back up, fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on the cross, and let his love and his grace compel us to live differently. So if that's you today, look to the cross. If you're not a Christian, a friend brought you, family member, first time you've been here a couple times, whatever, we want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. We love you. And today, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have the hope of eternal life now and forever. You can have a new heart. The spirit of the living God in you can change you to live a different life. But you've got to stop living your life. You've got to turn away from it and cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me, change me because of what you did at the cross. Would you cover me? Would you cleanse me with your blood? Would you help me to have a resurrected life now and forever? So if that's you, I'm going to be in the back over by the coffee during the next song. If you want to talk, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to be baptized into Jesus Christ today, you can take that step, and we want to help you do it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross of Christ. Lord, thank you for your grace that we did not earn or deserve your forgiveness, and yet you gave it to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life that we never could live, and to die in our place on the cross, taking our sin, our guilt, and our shame upon himself in his blood covering over us. Lord, thank you for raising him from the dead on the third day. We look forward to his return. God, I pray, move people to put their faith in Jesus today. Let today be the day that they trust him. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.